hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor Podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm glad to have you here. Today on the show, I'm answering your questions about IUDs and how to navigate accessing sexual health services, as well as questions about bacterial vaginosis, or BV, and why we need to stop shaming ourselves and our bodies. I also share my interview with clinical social worker and psychotherapist Raheem Foyer. We talk all about sex therapy and what it means to actually be sex positive in a pretty sex negative world. Also, I finally have a website. So if you want to know more about the work that I do or dig into all of the amazing resources that I share with you here on this podcast, then check out www.leatidy.com. But first, today in sex. The past few weeks have been intense, hence why this episode is later than usual, but I am really glad to be back and to be recording. Levi and I have been building up to a move into our apartment, the first home that we actually own together, and we are now here, thank goodness, after waiting for three years, and I'm recording this episode amongst some unpacked boxes and our kind of soon-to-be office space. And the day that we were signing our final paperwork for our mortgage, Levi's grandmother passed away. Levi affectionately called her Gram Jam, and she was an incredibly important person in both of our lives. So between packing up our things and signing our mortgage, we went up to Levi's hometown to be with his family and to say our goodbyes. And I really struggled to balance between being present with our family and then also doing the bare minimum that I needed for work so I wouldn't feel just swallowed up by the sheer magnitude of all that I have on my plate. But you're probably wondering, what does this all have to do with sex? Well, I'm thinking a lot about that. And and when we're grieving, our emotions are high and we're kind of stumbling around trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. And sometimes being intimate with someone, whether it's sexual or not, that's exactly what we need. We need to feel touched. We need to feel seen. And for some folks, there is nothing as life-affirming as being intimate with someone. It's a statement that today I'm alive in this moment. I am present and enjoying the incredible things that my body can experience. And it's not like that terrible scene, you know, from Wedding Crashers where Will Ferrell talks about like picking up women at funerals, but there is something about the reminder of our own mortality that maybe makes us want to reach out to someone and, and deny that reality. And this is even more prominent if the person who died was our sexual partner. Don't worry, Levi and I are both doing really well, but it does make me think more about grief. You know, something so many of us are going through right now, and all of us will experience at some point in our lives. And it's made me think about how that impacts our sexual health. There is a fantastic book by Joan Price, one of my favorite advocates for older adult sexuality, called Sex After Grief, Navigating Your Sexuality After Losing Your Beloved. And it really digs into those, those common myths we have about how we are supposed to grieve and the rules about when we're allowed to be sexual again after losing a partner. I've linked the article in Psychology Today that really breaks down some of those myths, such as you have to wait at least a year for sex with any new partner, or sex with a new lover betrays your departed mate, and how we need to be kind to ourselves if we deal with the twists and the turns of grief. 
My final thought is that therapy can be an incredible way to talk through our experiences and move through our feelings in a supported and safe environment. This is why I am so excited to share my interview with Raheem because he he really breaks down those barriers for us when it comes to accessing therapy. But for now, let's get into those calls. Hi, Dr. Leah. I'm a new listener of The Love Doctor, and I wanted to call in with a question. I was just listening to episode six of last season, the first season, um, where you talk a little about about birth control, and I wanted to share my experience, and ha- and I have a question. So I had a hom- hormonal IUD inserted in 2016, and I I had it inserted because I was having sex for the first time with a man. Um, I had always had relationships and sexual encounters with women before this. For the first time, I had a relationship with a man, and I was feeling really paranoid about getting pregnant. So I decided basically on a whim to get an IUD. I didn't get a lot of explanation on what the side effects could be, um, and I went in for the procedure not really even knowing how invasive and and painful it could be. So it ended up being quite a painful and negative experience because the healthcare providers that inserted it basically were not empathetic at all. And when I was having pain and dizziness after the insertion, they threatened to remove it, saying that if my body wasn't going to take it, um, then they would remove it. Very shortly afterwards, maybe less than two months in, I got an infection. Um, I don't really know if it was a bacterial or a yeast infection, but this was the first time in my life that this has ha- this had happened. I never had that type of infection before. It was a very new and uncomfortable experience. And long story short, the next few years, I had recurring infections. So I knew that it had to have something to do with that IUD. It became recurrent. I was sure it was connected, but nobody that I went um, to have checkups with would accept that or give it any validity at all. Eventually, though, I decided that it was just not worth it. I knew there was a connection. I trusted my body and what it was telling me. I had it removed. Even after it was removed, I had recurring infections, which let me just say I was going to the doctor. I was getting treated. But just with doctors that I honestly didn't feel safe and comfortable with, doctors who were giving me medicine without always giving exams to see what type of infection it was. And the problem just continued and continued until a year after the insertion, the infections finally started to be less recurrent. Um, and I'm sorry to to be speaking so much and, and telling such a long story, but I just wanted to talk about the fact that in 2019, 
I was sitting in a restaurant having some food and there was a TV and a commercial came on for this particular IUD that I had. It was an advertisement and at the end of the advertisement it said, you know, possible side effects are vaginal infections. So that moment was very frustrating but also validating of what I had known to be true throughout my experience and it just made me so mad that at no point in time none of the gynecologists that saw me um, first of all that I wasn't told that this was a possible side effects and then that when I was making the connection myself it was dismissed and that none of these doctors had done enough research into this type of birth control to tell me, yes, this is a possible side effect. It's a very long story. I just wanted to for you to speak on, a little bit on how, even though some birth control options like IUDs are very useful for some people, including yourself, like you were saying, um, it is important for us to know what the possible side effects are, especially for healthcare providers to know so that when those side effects come up, they can alert their patients that that is what's going on. I also wanted for you to speak on the fact that so many health providers don't listen to their patients. So maybe if they had listened to me and given some weight to what I had said, they might have been able to do that research and come back to me saying, you know, you were right. This can be a side effect, and this is what we can do. And can you speak a little bit on shame around vaginal infections? All of this to say a lot of shame around these infections and the th and what I was going through and really feeling like there was no one to turn to who was going to listen to me and help me find a solution for what I was going through. So those are my questions. I'm sorry for such a long message. I hope you have a chance to listen to it and maybe you can include some of these questions in your podcast. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. Caller, thank you for sharing your story and, and for really taking us through that journey of what it is like to access healthcare and when, unfortunately, when our healthcare system lets us down. There's a few things that I want to talk about in terms of IUDs, and then I want to talk more about your own experience. So I know that in uh, previous episodes, I have talked about how I have a hormonal IUD. Um, and just like a few fun facts that I want to share first. Hormonal IUDs are actually called barrier methods and are not considered hormonal methods of birth control. The difference is that barrier methods, they physically stop the sperm from coming near the egg. We could think about that when we're thinking about condoms, right? Whether they're internal or external, they're literally stopping sperm from reaching the egg. And hormonal methods, well, how they work is that they actually stop ovulation. They stop the egg from being released into the uterus. So essentially, hormonal methods are stopping the egg, barrier methods are stopping the sperm. And IUDs don't stop ovulation. So I want you to know that how that works is that the IUD itself, the hormonal IUD, uh, is a barrier method because it actually slow releases progestin into the uterus 
And this thickens the fluid of the cervix and it makes a physical barrier to the sperm. Really cool stuff, right? But in terms of IUDs, the most important thing for you to know, and caller, I'm so sorry that you have had such a negative experience around it, but in the world of birth control, IUDs, they are the safest and they are the most effective method of birth control on the planet. And we need to educate people more about IUDs because it comes down to social justice and it comes down to accessibility. IUDs are also immediately reversible and they come out in a second. I mean, this isn't like, you know, you take it out yourself when you decide to take it. You obviously have to go to a healthcare provider, but this is why we call them long-acting reversible contraception or LARC for short. IUDs, the last thing I want to say about them is that they are 99.8% effective. That is amazing. And of a study of female gynecologists in the U.S., 99% of them use IUDs. And I know there are so many different reasons to choose different methods, but it's important to know the effectiveness of IUDs. It's important to know how tested and how safe they are so that we can make informed decisions that work for our bodies. Obviously, I'm biased. I think that IUDs are really amazing, but they don't protect against STIs, which is often why we use condoms, external or internal, used in combination. But the thing about IUDs and what healthcare providers don't talk to us enough about are the side effects. And I can tell you how wonderful IUDs are. I can tell you about my own personal lived experience. But even when I did a lecture about contraception in my class that I'm teaching at a university, I had so many students stay afterwards saying that the IUD was a wonderful option for them, but the insertion was really painful. They didn't have an open enough conversation with their healthcare provider about what to expect, and they didn't know what the side effects were going to be. This is why we need to educate ourselves about choosing birth control options that work with our bodies and how they align with our values. And the problem is healthcare providers, they need to be a part of that process, but I want you to know It's not like healthcare providers come into the world and don't have any values and are just there to help people. Obviously, it would be wonderful. I have so much respect for healthcare providers and the work that they do. They are also people. They have their values, their inherent biases. And our educational system is not preparing healthcare providers to talk about sexual health with their patients. So in terms of getting an IUD, if folks are concerned about it, the best thing that you can do is if you have a sexual health clinic nearby or in a community nearby, those are the best people to go to. These folks, their job is to talk about sexual health with you and they do IUD insertion all the time. That's what you want. Not someone who's like never inserted an IUD before, but like they kind of know how to do it. You want someone who like boom, 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 they know how it works. Also, This is really getting at larger issues that happen in terms of healthcare. We don't listen to folks with vulvas about their bodies and about their experiences, and this is particularly true for BIPOC folks. Canada and all across the world, but Canada in particular, has a terrible history of not listening to Indigenous women about their experiences, not listening to BIPOC folks about their experiences of their bodies, and we need to share the importance of listening to our patients and trusting them when they tell us something is wrong with our bodies. So caller, I'm sorry that your healthcare provider didn't have that level of 
respect, to talk to you, to listen to you when you said something was going on. And all of these repeated vaginal infections, how they didn't try and come up with a solution with you instead of just talking down to you. It's it's a totally a product of our patriarchal society that they are trying to tell you what's wrong with you instead of having some sort of collaborative effort. Because you are the expert on your own body. You know how it feels. You know how it functions. And so isn't that a wonderful resource that healthcare providers should be taking advantage of? You asked specifically about shame around vaginal infections. And the hard thing is, is that addressing shame takes a long time and a lot of work, but it doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile. So we need to speak openly about it. The fact that you asked me about it on this podcast, you are doing your part to address that shame and say vaginal infections are very normal. This is something that happens quite often, but we need to be aware of our health and hopefully find a healthcare provider that can help us make sure that this doesn't happen repeatedly. I also want you to know that a part of my doctoral research was talking about genital shame, you know, the shame that so many of us are taught at such a young age and how that genital shame, feeling shame about talking about our bodies, that leads into sexual shame. But, you know, like we don't shame people for other health issues like, oh, I, I broke my elbow. Someone isn't like, oh, well, you shouldn't have been doing whatever you were doing. It's like, no, like sometimes that happens. We break an arm or some, you know, we get chicken pox, whatever. But for some reason, as soon as it comes down to genitals and it comes down to sex, we are weird about it. My recommendation is hopefully you can access a sexual health clinic in your community. If not, I want you to know that there are so many amazing resources online that you can talk to. I just finished my sexual health educator training through Options for Sexual Health, and they have an amazing line called the Sex Sense line. You can either send them an email or you can call them and they will answer your questions. They are trained professionals who are there to answer your questions and to provide resources for you. So I'm going to leave all of the links down in the episode description, but also please feel free to go to the website, go to the podcast page, and on each episode, I have listed all of the resources that I mentioned here on the show. So check it out. And really the best thing we can do about addressing shame is to educate ourselves and to educate other people in our lives. I hope that's helpful. Okay, let's take another call. Hi, Leah. I wanted to start off by saying thank you for holding an inclusive, positive, and research-informed space for love and sexual health. It's so important. I'm sorry if this is a bit long-winded, but I was wondering if you know anything about recurrent bacterial vaginosis, sometimes called BV. I had never heard of it until a few years ago when I was diagnosed, not long after starting a monogamous relationship with a cis man. The most common symptom is a noticeable vaginal odor, and from what I've read, it's super common. Yet there doesn't seem to be much information about what causes it, and it's really just a vaginal pH imbalance. I saw two different doctors and was prescribed two versions of antibiotics. This treatment did work, but the odor would always come back again and again. The second doctor was even gaslighting me when I told her it came back, and she almost withheld testing to confirm. The prescription gel contains parabens, and taking antibiotics long-term cannot be good, but it's seemingly the only treatment option. I'm feeling frustrated with the symptoms continuing to come back because the odor makes me feel really self-conscious, especially in the bedroom. 
I don't experience as much pleasure because I'm caught up in my head. Plus, my partner has expressed that he no longer wants to go down on me because of this. And, well, that sucks because it's a part of sex I really enjoy. Anyway, I know you're not a medical doctor, but do you have any thoughts on dealing with the shame surrounding these symptoms? And how can I work through this with my partner to experience more pleasure? Thank you so much. Thank you, caller. I, uh, I just, I really appreciate when folks are willing to share their experiences with me because you are not the only one who has been struggling with recurrent bacterial vaginosis. And it's not meaning to belittle your experience in any way, but the more that we talk about our own experiences, the more we can say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. Let's address all of this like shame and baggage that goes around these things and actually create a more open environment for us to talk about our health because sexuality, as we know, is a huge part of that and it shouldn't be stigmatized. So for folks who are wondering what bacterial vaginosis is, I'm just going to read something to you about a brief definition from a textbook that I use for options for sexual health called Human Sexuality in a World of Diversity. So bacterial vaginosis, or BV, is most often caused by an overgrowth of the bacterium Gardnerella vaginalis. Don't worry, you won't be tested on like repeating that back to me. But the bacterium, it's transmitted primarily through sexual contact. So the most characteristic symptom is a thin, bad-smelling vaginal discharge, but a lot of folks who are infected with it, they often have no symptoms. And diagnosis requires culturing the bacterium in the laboratory. So a lot of folks will think it's a UTI, a urinary tract infection, but actually if you think that this is what you have, or to ask your healthcare provider, hey, can we also try doing a culture of the bacterium from my vagina? Besides causing these really problematic and troublesome symptoms, in some cases, BV, it may increase the risk of various gynecological problems, including infections of the reproductive tract. So oral treatments are the most recommended, and they're really effective in most cases. And then topical treatments, meaning you put them directly on the vagina, topical treatments are also effective. But recurrences are really common. There's still a lot of research and questions about there about whether um, if we have a partner with a penis, whether they should also be treated because the bacterium can usually be found in the urethra of a symptom-free person with a penis. I also want you to know that bacterial vaginosis, it's the most common cause of vaginal discharge and odor in folks with vulvas, and it affects 29% of folks with vulvas overall. Also, a really interesting thing is that Folks with vulvas who use a combined method of birth control, such as an oral contraceptive like the pill, they have lower rates of bacterial vaginosis. So an oral like estrogen pill is thought to have a nurturing effect on the lactobacilli in the vagina, and it may explain the lower rate of bacterial vaginosis in folks who use oral contraceptives. We don't really know the cause of BV. We have, we're still figuring it out. It might be sexually assisted or sexually transmitted. A lot of the time we don't actually label BV as a sexually transmitted infection because we can get it in other ways, not just from sex. So we want you to know in terms of recurrent BV, folks with vulvas with recurrent BV, they often have the same partner before and after treatment, and they might be reinfected with this bacteria by their partner with a penis. So while the research is still a bit inconclusive about getting treatment for folks with penises, I think it might be something that's really important to talk about in our experiences. If you're having recurrent BV, this affects your sex life. It affects your self-esteem. 
And the sad thing about it is that it might actually just be coming back from the partner who you are continuously having sex with. So this is a part of when we get tested for STIs, when we go to a healthcare clinic and we do a full test to make sure that we are healthy, we are open for business, we are feeling ready to get it on, that partner, partners, everyone involved in the sexual experience, all of us need to get tested. Because there's no point if one partner gets tested and then the other one keeps reinfecting them with whatever is going on. So this is a part of addressing that shame. It's also saying that if your partner or partners is willing to go with you to the healthcare provider to get tested with you, this is a testament to your relationship. It's a testament to the kind of open conversations that you want to be having about sex. This is also something where if you want to work on experience more pleasure with each other, I don't know about you, but if I know that my body is healthy, if I know that I have done all that I can to to feel empowered in my body, to have education about how my body works, then I know that I can access pleasure more equally. A lot of time when we have problems with pleasure or other things in our sexual relationships, it's a psychological thing because we're worried about how our body looks, how it's going to perform, how it smells. And so we need to know what's going on with our bodies so that we can free up our minds so they stop cutting us down, so they stop getting in the way of us really enjoying ourselves. And having those conversations can be difficult. But if you are going to have an intimate sexual relationship with someone, isn't it nice to know that you can also talk about what that's going to look like? Because that's what's going to make it better for both of you. It's not just sharing your health status, although I agree we need to do that so much more. It's also talking about What brings us pleasure? How do I want to be touched? How do you want me to touch you? What do we want this experience to look like? And how hot that is to have that prelude conversation about what's going to happen in sexual experiences together. That is how we work on creating more pleasure. We have conversations about it. And it's not like you hit the sheets and you stop talking. Keep talking. Give each other positive reinforcements like, oh, that feels so good. Try a little bit lower. Touch me. Like do it in circles or just having those those things that tell our partner or our partners what is going on in that experience for us and checking in with them being like, does this feel good? Do you like it when I touch you here, lick you there, do whichever, like having those conversations in and out of the bedroom or wherever else you are having sex is so important for our pleasure. I'm going to share with you a great research article about bacterial vaginosis, and it talks about how we do need to do more research to figure out what's going on. The great thing is, is that it breaks it down. Like if these are your symptoms or these are things that's happening, here are lots of different ways that you can be treated. And it might give you some information that when you go talk to a healthcare provider, you can bring that with you as something that might spark the conversation. Other thing I want to share is an article by Taylor Nolan, who I had not heard of, but apparently was in like Bachelors in Paradise and was on a season of The Bachelor a few years ago. Anyway, Taylor Nolan wrote this article saying, Taylor Nolan wants you to be kinder to your vagina. Yeah, she talks about she is a beautiful woman who was on Bachelor in Paradise saying, hey, I have BV and it is something that I am dealing with and we need to be kinder to ourselves. If you live in British Columbia like I do, I feel like I'm going to take Dr. Bonnie Henry's advice. We need to be kind. We need to be calm. We need to be safe. We're talking about COVID-19, but hey team, we're also talking about sex. And now I am so excited to share my interview with Raheem. 
We talk all about sex positivity, how to rewrite our stories about ourselves and also our sexual selves, and also addressing mental health. I feel like we cannot talk about mental health enough because it is so present and a part of all of our lives right now. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, Raheem. How are you doing today? I am well. Thanks. How about you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I keep like looking out at the snow and being like, hopefully I can drive home. It's one of the few times I'm not at my home. So it's it's a worry not a lot of people have right now. <laughs> uh, yes, it's not a worry that I have. So sorry you're going through that all alone. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. So I always like during the podcast, I introduce my guests as well, but I kind of like to hear my guests introduce themselves. You know yourself best and the work that you do. So okay. tell me a bit about yourself, what you do, and why are you so passionate about it? Ah, okay. Well, my name is Raheem Thauer. My pronouns are he and him. I am uh, a clinical social worker and psychotherapist. Um, I'm pretty much born and raised in Toronto, and I recently relocated to Winnipeg, Manitoba. I am passionate about the intersections of social justice and mental health, and I'm pretty dedicated to doing uh, queer uh, Muslim organizing in Canada. So those are some of the things that I do and I love doing. And it's hard to answer what makes me passionate about them, you know? Well, when I mean, when it comes to community organizing, I really, I think I'm constantly trying to create community space that I would have appreciated or that I do directly even in present day benefit from that feels really nice. And as far as psychotherapy and social justice go, I think for me, I really care about mental health in, in an exploratory way to really figure out and analyze what's going on for people specifically in their life and in their context, but doing things that are so individual, I feel compelled to, to, also think about social justice in larger systems and where individual interventions fit in a larger system. Hmm. That must be hard though to, to, I feel like I get overwhelmed by thinking about how basically screwed up our systems are. And especially when you work, you know, one-on-one, but then you also, you know, you also teach. So in some ways it's nice to have like a larger audience instead of when you're like sitting down one-on-one with someone, but it can get hard when you're so passionate about social justice and the work that you do, but you're like, okay, is this just one drop in the bucket or is it, is it having ripples like outwards? What's your sense of that right now? Well, I think, In recent years, I've been spending time doing training for clinicians and providing um, clinical supervision. And one of the things I love about it is that I feel like I'm teaching students to really hold space and really think about what holding space means. That language is used in popular media nowadays. And and I'm not saying people don't know what they're talking about when they use it, but certainly I I use that language very intentionally. And so it's constantly our role in our job to think about systems and how they impact people. But if you're going to be a clinician and you're going to analyze someone's life, you also have to think about what is systemic and what is their defense? What is their avoidance? Are you not applying for that job or are you not getting out of that relationship Are you not seeking that opportunity because you're marginalized or because you're afraid of failure? And do those things intersect, you know? And I think there's a puzzle 
that we get to solve, but only if we can hold space for both the systemic and the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like the intentionality piece. There's another term that I'm going to, I want to get your opinion on, but it's definitely something like I talk about holding space and, and especially, you know, as a white settler, as a cisgender woman, I'm very aware of the privilege space that I take in the world. And so it's just always trying like every day to be like, okay, I, I take up a lot of space in the world, but as a woman, in some ways, I feel like it keeps trying to be hemmed in. So how do I balance those two things. And like you said, it's a systemic thing. And it's also an individual action, an action part of that, which is so complex. Like some days are better than others. Your sense of like, oh, good, what I'm doing is important. And other days you're like, am I speaking into a void? (laughs) Totally. And you know, the other thing that I think about frequently is that systems have been developed over such a long period of time to prioritize and advantage some groups of people over others, that there are people out there doing systemic or system level, organizational level, policy level work, and that can't happen in a vacuum. We also need, like when I think about healing, you know, there could be a whole region in the world that's affected by trauma and war, and that happens with one bomb. And to help people heal individually, that's a lot of hours of therapy for a thousand people individually. Mm -hmm. But that's the value of human life. It takes, each life is affected and takes time to heal. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, and I think that really leads into the work that you do. Because when I think when people think about, you know, sexual health broadly, they're like, oh, you're like the sex ed lady who comes into school and like, you show me how to put a condom on this like Woody, like that's about it. So it's, and I hear so many people are like, wait, are there other jobs that I could do like in the realm of like sexual health of like, you know, working with people? So can you tell me a little bit about how you got into your line of work? Because I think folks are realizing more and more now that there's a lot you can do in the field of sexual health. Sure. I think one of my big realizations was that the work under the umbrella of sexuality, the work can be about sexual health. It can be about sexual identity and people who are erotically marginalized. It can also be about sex itself, you know, helping people have better sex, talking to people about uh, pleasure, talking to people about sexual and romantic communication. It can also be about relationships. You know, the way we separate gender identity and gender expression makes me think about, you know, like a parallel to uh, sex and sexual expression, right? There's there's a way in which we communicate about our sexuality, which is expressive. And there's a whole language there that's both verbal and nonverbal and shifts between cultures and based on people's histories. That is, um, it, it creates a niche for, and, and a need. So me personally, look, I, I began my work and in this, I began my work in this career through sexual health. Um, I started working for an HIV AIDS organization in Kitchener, Ontario, and then uh, moved to an ethno-specific agency in Toronto. And then thereafter, I continued to work in the HIV AIDS sector for for quite some time. And I went from sexual health to bridging my work to becoming a therapist post-MSW, and then thinking about okay, how do I take knowledge I have about sexual identities, working in particular with queer and trans guys, and turn that into 
uh, a special focus in my psychotherapy. Um, and inadvertently, you know, I was talking, I was working with people who are sexual minorities or erotically marginalized at times and talking about their very specific sexual issues. Um, and so that's when some of those pieces under the umbrella of sexuality came together for me. Yeah, that's great. Well, and I want to talk to you too about um, about your approach because on on your website, which don't worry, everyone, I will have linked in the episode description so everyone can go and check you out, uh, and your Instagram too, whatever Twitter, wherever I follow you on Twitter. So I'll definitely get people to follow you there because you talk about you operate from this approach of harm reduction, sex positive, anti oppressive, and trauma informed, and you also provide psychotherapy to newcomer, racialized, queer, trans, and HIV affected communities. Yes. Which like, that's such a broad scope. Okay, so let's break <laughs> let's break that down because there's there's so much for people to like. Oh, I see myself reflected in that, and then for some folks, maybe not. So maybe let's talk about your approach first, and then we can talk about the community specifically. Okay, sure. Look, I think being sex positive is something that I constantly have to work at. It's not. I call it an approach because that's what the language is, but it's a practice. And that's because we live in a world where we're taught to feel ashamed of our bodies, of sex, sexual communication, and sexuality as a whole. And so I'm regularly thinking about or encountering other people's fantasies, troubles, um, obstacles. And when I'm helping them navigate theirs, I'm confronted with my own. And so to regularly tell myself and or encourage myself to examine my biases or when I feel, you know, disgust or avoidance, envy, shame around things to do with sex, sexuality, bodies, that's an indication that there's something that I need to shift because I know that none of those things are inherently bad. So that's what being sex positive is about for me, you know, so part of being sex positive, like to, to, you know, to take it further is challenging at times how I have thought about sexualized drug use, both of other people's and myself, how I might write or rewrite an experience of a sexual encounter in a negative light based on where it occurred. You know, if you do something, if you have a sexy time with somebody uh, not in a home, <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, in a dark room, in the back of a club, in some other public place, like whatever, our lives, you know, they can get wild at times. Um, those are the kinds of things that I know I have rewritten in my mind at times to say, oh, was that a good encounter? Was that a good choice? And it's riddled with shame or, or um, apprehension at the very least. And so both in myself and in others, you know, I, thinking about what is it about that setting that makes that brings out the shame or makes me want to rewrite it as though that situation was somehow risky or dangerous or or something to you know not celebrate so those are some examples of what sex positivity means to me being trauma informed is really helping me it really helps me think about um how all the things we consider to be problems like if somebody says i have trouble communicating during sex or I experience a lot of pain when I bottom. What else do people say? What else do I say? I hate how my body looks, or I hate what this part of my body looks like. 
or I don't feel sexy or sexual for these reasons. All of those things that we see as problems are in part adaptations mm. to a trauma history or to a history of difficult experiences, right? If you don't like yourself, you have learned to not like yourself and then you do a series of protective things to keep yourself safe. And that's all a result of, you know, being part of a difficult or toxic culture, being on the receiving ends of really negative messages about yourself, your body, your sexuality. So that's what being trauma-informed means to me, you know, to really contextualize the things that we call as problems as being adaptations to, to difficult experiences of just living in this world. Um, anti-oppression and being anti-oppressive, you know, uh, it kind of undercuts both of those. I think I speak, you know, uh, I've spoken to those in a way, but being anti-oppressive to me is really also honoring the ways in which certain communities on a, on a large scale have been taught to not appreciate themselves, celebrate themselves or know their worth, you know? So when I think about being sex positive in a largely sex negative world, we're talking usually about individual experiences where we've been shamed. But if we're talking about anti-oppression, we're talking about people who are disproportionately as a group being undervalued, you know, and have a very different life experience as a result of being marginalized. And I think acknowledging that, affirming that, and owning the privileges I've had is very important in the same way that you talked about, uh, talked about that. So did I cover the approaches? Yes. I <laughs> 10 out of 10, you did it. Yay. Right. Well, and I, I really appreciate you breaking that down because I think I think these are terms that, especially like sex positivity, but also like anti-oppressive and trauma-informed approaches, these are things that are, they're kind of um, – without minimizing them, they sound kind of like catchy right now. Like they're, everyone's like, yes. oh, I use a trauma-informed education approach or I'm anti-oppressive. You're like, okay, but what does that actually mean? And what does that look like in your practice? So I just, I, yeah, I really appreciate your, your fulsome description sure. of that. You know, like the one thing I didn't touch on was harm reduction. And I think it's, I feel like that's self-explanatory, but I, I will say that there, I like to take harm reduction to another level if I can, you know? And sometimes that means if we're talking about, let's say, you know, use of drugs and alcohol, not just what you can do to minimize harms. I think that's almost too simplistic. Sometimes I think about what is it that you consider to be a problem? What are the outcomes? And what happens right before you use more than you would like? And harm reduction can target not just the amount you use, but it could target the outcome or the antecedent or the activator, the thing that happens before, you know? So if what happened before I did a bunch of blow was that I got into a conflict with somebody, maybe next time I want to work on a harm reduction approach that challenges or targets what happened before I did all those drugs. Like, do I want to take a walk? Do I want to talk to somebody? Do I want to get into a different headspace? And then just observe to see if that has an impact on the amount of substance. You know, somebody says, I spent way too much money or the next day I was feeling really bad. Harm reduction is also taking care of yourself afterwards, right? right? Most recently, I've been thinking a lot about the world we live in and how it really it really conditions us to, to be impulsive. It, right, like with shopping, with all kinds of things that are self-soothing that we can do instantaneously. And I think technology plays a big role in this. And I think it, in some way, it socializes us to use substances impulsively. So now I'm starting to think about 
harm reduction as not abstinence or not reducing, not focusing on reducing what you're taking or how much you're taking, but actually being more present in the moment between sips of your drink, between bumps of the cocaine you're doing. You know, in each step, really to think about how do you feel? Are you having a good time? Where are you at with your body? What is your mind telling you? To really create a kind of space in between what seems to be urgent and compulsive. Hmm. Hmm. I think that really taps into that that impulsivity. I, I I like how you've you've used that term. I think that also leads into this idea that that the best sex is sex that is spontaneous and it just like happens. Yes. Right. I mean, that's what you see in media all the time, and it's like you don't see people communicating or talking about barrier methods or anything. So I, I wonder if that's a part of it. It's almost a part of that consumer culture of let's consume what we think sex is supposed to be like, and then also feed into that impulsiveness. So yeah, I think the idea of rooting down into your own emotions and knowing that what's happening in your body in that certain moment, regardless of the, what you're doing, whether it's, you're taking a sip, you're out with friends, you're, you know, you're doing a bump of cocaine or you're having sex with someone like it would probably be a better experience if you know what's happening inside you at that moment. Totally. And I think part of that is learning or relearning how to tolerate a bit of uncertainty. Um, Because when, you know, when I think about this context of sex, you know, nowadays, I, I, I know we all go on like our online apps, right? And I've talked to so many people who they'll go on an app and they'll look for somebody and they either have it right here, right now. Or, you know, they're cruising for a while, they jerk off, and then they're kind of over it. <laughs> they're like, oh, <laughs> you know? that was nice. I'm done. Yeah. And that could be great, right? But if we can, I think if we can draw it out a little bit, there can be a lot of fun there. You know, if, if, I, if, I, if I wait to meet somebody, um, there can be some fun there. Not that it has to be like that. But way too, too many of us, I think, are just like, using the apps as almost like a, a substitute for porn because there's something real time about it. And then we jerk off and then we're done. And that doesn't necessarily meet our connection needs. Right. So it, it's almost like the difference between like instant and delayed gratification. Yes. Oh, you gave me the language actually. Yes. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Oh, I like that. You know, I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, like as you're swiping, it, it feels like um, choose your own adventure porn. You know, like, it's like, oh, like, I'm, I'm the one who gets to choose what's going to happen. And I mean, COVID also like, (laughs) throws a lot of wrench into those plans, though, too. So, oh, interesting. So, okay, so we've gotten to your approach. And so what I also want to know is, and what I really, I find really important on, you know, on your website, when you talk about your work, is that you really indicate like specific communities that you work with. And so why is that important to you to flag that for folks, like as soon as they land on your website? You know, in truth, where I came from were the types of jobs I had gotten, um, af- like before and after doing a master's of social work. And each of the of the jobs that I had focused on, it was population-based health. Like if you're working in HIV, often you're working with particular groups of people that are af- disproportionately affected. Um, and I worked on a newcomer health team and an LGBTQ health team. And that's kind of where that emerged. And it seemed 
notable to me to put on, you know, to, to market myself in that way and to, to make explicit the populations I've worked with, not because I can't support and work with other people, but because I think there's specific experiences that people have in some of those communities that I came to know over a period of time. Mm. Um, and so I feel like I sit with a kind of knowledge that can be uh, helpful and I can tap into when working with certain, when certain communities. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, I, and something that's in, important too, and I've um, had this conversation with, you know, some of my friends and colleagues before about, you know, you may think, so like, for example, so like me as a bisexual woman, but I'm, I'm married to a man. So I'm, I'm straight passing. I get to walk through the world with all of those privileges. So there's something about, you're like, oh, I have a queer inclusive space, but you can't just like, you know, assume that people know that. You need to say it explicitly because if someone is, you know, reaching out and they want to know more about me or they see the podcast, they want to know that that's a part of my framework because I want to know that it's a safe space. So uh, what what I really like there, and I think that's something that a lot of, you know, white, cis, straight folks wouldn't as think about. They're like, I'm safe when I go everywhere. What do you mean? So, <laughs> yes, yes. Right? so having to say like, you know, this is a space where these specific communities are safe because you have that experience, right? Like I just, I found that really uh, important. Thanks for that. You know what? It's tricky working in a community that you belong to because mm-hmm. I, I also in my, um, in my consent to service or service agreement forms that I have on my site, I, um, I have a clause about dual relationships and letting people know that I always encourage and welcome them to talk about our overlapping communities and what kind of reassurance they need from me or what conversations we need to have to make our ther- the therapy space comfortable. Because, you know, I work with clients who, whom they're connected to and they're talking about in therapy that are part of my friendship circle or a professional circle. And it gets tricky. It's a safe space in one way and then in another way it can feel a bit threatening. And so we have to talk about what that looks like. And I have to reassure people and let them know, you know, you have a right to tell me, you know, that if you're going to be in a space to give me a heads up and, and it's my job to not be there to ensure that it's comfortable for you. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that we have to talk about, which is quite nuanced. I don't know that I think there's lots of folks that don't have to do those kinds of don't have to have those kinds of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the kind of the nice things about like for me in terms of doing this podcast, if people send me in their questions, like I know who they are, but they're anonymous to everyone else. And most of the time they don't live where I live. Like I, I, I'm never going to see them. I've never actually met them in person. So there's kind of um, a nice anonymity that's kept there. So I've never had to think about like, oh man, you talk to me all about like masturbation. And I got the, I get all sorts of strange questions on Instagram. Now I, I do love people feel emboldened to kind of just say things about their sex lives to me now, but I don't have that same code of conduct because I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, just a podcaster right now like if if i was your professor okay there's a there's a different relationship but again like i'm i'm not a therapist i'm not a social worker so i hadn't thought about that uh that context of when you move outside of the room what what are still your responsibilities well yes because i you know i'm gonna go to places where i want to dance or grab a drink or uh there might be sexualized spaces i enter uh i mean I haven't in a long time, <laughs> mostly thanks to this pandemic, but those are all considerations, you know? Right. 
I hadn't yeah. even thought of that. Oh, so interesting. See, people, this is to listeners right now. There's so many different amazing jobs that are out there. But one of the caveats that goes with it is you just have to be aware of now where you go out or like party and stuff because you're like, hmm, did I talk to that person earlier today? Like, hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, gosh. So uh, what I really love when I was, you know, I like to do my research. I'm a researcher. That's what I do. So when I was going through um, effective counseling and psychotherapy services, you said that you're really uh, dedicated to building capacity around issues of mental health, sexual health, diversity, and equity. And obviously, you know, for me, I'm really interested in like the sexual health part, but understanding that all of these things, they, they feed into each other. So we kind of got into like what that means in terms of your approach, but what would that look like in action? I guess maybe I'm asking to like to demystify a bit of that process because there are a lot of folks, there's still so much taboo about going and talking to a professional. Yeah. You know, and a good example might be just taking the intersection of sexual health and mental health, mm. right? So we think about sexual health typically to, uh, to do with STIs, HIV, and reproductive health, birth control, right? Um, I would say sexual health is also how you feel when, like before you have sex, how you make an encounter happen, what it feels like to flirt, what it feels like to communicate in advance if you're meeting someone online, what it is you're interested in doing, right? That's part of sexual health and it's also mental health. And if I am feeling good about myself and I'm not worried about uh, rejection, or I'm, I'm okay to insist on something that I like or something that gives me safety. And I don't fear that I'm going to be rejected by putting that out, you know, then I'm in a good position to meet someone without having my boundaries encroached on. Mm-hmm. Um, I often think about what it is that people are looking for in sexual encounters. And you know, for so many people, it's the, the sex is a small component of it. Uh, I've heard a number of guys say things like, I just have sex so that I can cuddle with somebody afterwards. And so then my question is, that sounds great. Do you ask for that in advance? And they're like, no, right? So for me, I, I'm thinking, what would it take for you to explicitly be able to ask about that? And, and if you don't ask for that, what are you worried will happen, right? And for some folks, I know we live in a day and age of PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so um, a lot of people have done away with condoms, uh, but of course those don't protect you against other STIs. Now, a lot of folks are going to be fine with that and they'll say, you know, well, I'm safe for HIV, the other stuff I'm not so worried about. And I think that's a legitimate way to be and, and to, you know, to go about negotiating encounters. But in the day and age of PrEP, I think it's hard for some folks who want who still want to use condoms to be able to uh, enforce that or insist on that or talk about that. Mm-hmm. Right. And when I'm thinking about sexual health, I'm not thinking about, did you use a condom or not? That's beside the point. Like, how did it feel to say that knowing that you might get rejected? Cause it might be something that somebody else doesn't want. Mm-hmm. Right. Or how do you position yourself as somebody who is not on prep? Is it because you've chosen not to do it or be on prep? Or is it because you don't have the luxury of extended benefits that cover it, right? Mm -hmm. That locates you in the world as a particular, you know, as a a person of particular luxuries and privileges. Mm -hmm. And that means you're having sex in a world 
where other people's class and economic backgrounds very apparent, right? right? And so there's something to kind of talk about there. What does that feel like? And and that's a kind of erotic marginalization, um, in my view. Absolutely. Well, and and for me, like as an arts based practitioner, what I kind of see it as is you get to rehearse those conversations in like in a safe environment and you get to ask yourself those questions be like okay what would it take so if i'm just having sex with someone because i want to cuddle with them afterwards what would it take for me to feel comfortable or to feel confident and to accept potentially that rejection to say yeah maybe i want to sex but maybe i just want to i i think i just want to cuddle tonight or something so if i could do that in a safe space and practice that you know that language with you that am I not just way better prepared for when I do it in real life? Totally. And it's rehearsal that is, you know, if it's in therapy, it's likely <laughs> that it's going to be sober. And so <laughs> I find that to be particularly helpful because these conversations, like lots of people pair alcohol and sex, you know, or, or some kind of drug and sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and while that's great, I think, you know, in a sober moment to be able to say certain things out loud and also reflect with your, th- with your therapist to see how it feels like, Oh, you said a lot. How does that feel? <laughs> and you know, people be like, Oh, it's, I felt overwhelmed. I felt anxious. My palms are sweaty, but also I feel kind of happy. I feel relieved that I'm able to get it out. Mm-hmm. And that's really nice. You know, some mm-hmm. people, some people are in a, in a very different situation where they're doing a lot of cuddling and they want pound town. You know, they want to have, they want to be having a different kind of sex. And so the question then becomes, you know, for the person you're with, what would they need, do you think, to get in the same frame of mind as you? And how do you think you'll bring up this conversation? And the kinds of things you want to do in bed what is your sense of where your partner is with that? And how do you feel about having that conversation? Right. So it can go in different directions, but I think when it comes to communication and naming what it is you're interested in while taking care of somebody else's emotions and feelings, to me, that's mental health Mm -hmm. as much as it is sexual health. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it feels like that connection between that so much that that sex positive approach, which is the antithesis to like that shame based approach, right? Where it's, Mm -hmm. it's if, if I can practice with you, how are you going to say these things? Like that sense of relief that you said they would be, you're like, oh, this is, isn't as terrifying as I thought it would be. And obviously in the moment, the context will be, will be different, but at least if you've practiced saying it out loud once and thought through, okay, this is maybe how my body is going to react. This is how my mind is going to react. This is how I'm going to feel. Then then it, it feels like a way of of unpacking that shame, right? Because so much of it is just not being able to speak how you're actually feeling or speak or ask for what you actually want. And that's where that communication piece, yeah. oh, it's like you can't tell people enough that you're like communicating is the most important thing. They're like, I don't know if I believe you. I'm like, it is. So you know what? I will now go back on that and challenge the same thing <laughs> that I was purporting okay. a minute yeah. ago. I think communication is key and it's very helpful, but it's not, not everybody's going to be like an explicit person, like put everything in the most, you know, concrete terms. So some folks might talk about things in therapy and feel a sense of relief. They might even cry because it's the first time they're, they're talking about what enforcing boundaries look like, or they're pushing someone away, or they're telling someone that really doesn't feel good. And doing it in therapy in a simulated way 
or in a rehearsed way is enough. And then they move through the world, not necessarily communicating more, but they're more sure of what they want or don't want. Mm. And that can sometimes be enough in terms of who they gravitate toward and what kinds of things they accept in terms of other people's uh, behaviors. Mm. Okay. So, so would it be more true to say then, if we're following that line of thought, that it's not necessarily you're learning how to communicate to, you know, potential partner or partners. It's also being able to communicate and check in with yourself. So regardless yes. if you if you speak, these are my boundaries, or if you just understand that, then then that's – I think that's the first part of it. We're like, how do I talk totally. to my partner about sex? I'm like, well, how do you talk to yourself about sex? What's your own relationship with your body? So yes. maybe that's where you start. And Leah, those are such hard questions. You know, I, I, I have a – an inordinate number of people that I see in therapy who start off with, I want to work on boundaries. And um, there's nothing wrong with that, but everybody actually has a different definition of what that means because it's such a popularized term. People come to it with, with different experiences, different ideas. And so my question is, you want to work on boundaries. Do you want to make them more diffuse? Do you want to open them up a bit? Or are you looking to make them more rigid? Are you looking to make them more visible with some people versus others? Mm. You know, like what, let's get into what is it, what do you think it looks like? And people rarely are, are, are anticipating that I'm going to say, do you want to make your boundaries more diffuse? <laughs> <laughs> like almost nobody, but later, you know, throughout they think, oh, you know, there's some people who I give permission to to get into my space, to say things I don't like, to make decisions for me. And I don't like that. And I need to be more rigid with those people or make my boundaries more visible. And with other people who love me and care for me, I don't need to push them away so much. It's okay if I let them in a little bit, right? And they, they start to talk about the nuances of what these what these boundaries look like. Mm. That's so interesting too, because I, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I'm not there, so I don't know. But there's probably so many people who come to you being like, this is my problem, or I know what the problem is, and now you're going to help me fix it. And mm -hmm. instead, you're like, okay, well, first, I'm just going to like blow up this problem that you just asked me. And now we're going to work around all of these other things that are leading mm -hmm. to this. I'm doing problem with like bunny ears, because we all have those things that we work through. Is, is, does that feel like, and it's probably so much more nuanced than <laughs> that, but does that feel like a, a bit true? That's very true. And uh, no, you, you hit the nail on the head. And I would say that Part of the work is it's it's a bit of a if I were to put a, a visual gra a visual image to it I would say it's like a diamond where mm -hmm. at the top point it's a very specific problem and then it becomes my work to take it apart a bit and think about it in terms of more general themes and think about how those themes show up in people's lives right and when we boil things down and we broaden them a lot we are often talking about anxious energy, um, you know, latent aggression that doesn't get expressed, things you're angry about from the past, for example. We're talking about sex, sexual fantasies that go unfulfilled or sexual sacrifice that people think that they've made, um, fears of loss, grief. You know, these are common things that lots of people can relate to, but it looks very different in the, at, the, at the top point when they present their story. And so for me, in the first part of that triangle, it's to um, to make it more relatable and to break it down. And then we can get a bit more specific again in the other, you know, in the other half of the diamond or the reverse triangle where we're thinking about 
what is it going to look like for you to take this new knowledge you have um, and apply it to your very specific life, right? Because you, you're going to make decisions and, and you want to feel good about them. And we've talked about tolerating different kinds of different levels of distress and discomfort. Now, what is it going to look like in your specific life? And you're going to go and do it and you're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. So hopefully that demystifies therapy a little bit for folks. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think there's, there's so much that's still like misunderstood um, about therapy. But I think being able to, to talk about it openly and honestly is is such a, a huge way to get people to be like, Oh, like, maybe it's not such a big deal. I'm like, yeah, no. And a lot of the time, a lot of my own work has been with with older adults specifically. So there's still a huge generational piece there around what is socially acceptable you know, based on your age. And that's all very yes. like, you know, culturally specific as well. And so many other things. So yeah, it's, it's, it's quite interesting, even, you know, when I find myself talking about the work that I do with my parents, it's like, oh my gosh, like, this is just a bit out there for me. So I think <laughs> yeah. having that conversation, mom, if you're listening, it's, it's cool to go to therapy. You can talk about sex too. <laughs> You know what? I, I I wonder about like generationally it has become more popular for people to go to therapy, you know, for folks who are actually I don't like to generalize because I've had a lot of older clients, but I would say for younger folks, it is getting it is cooler to go to therapy now than it maybe was um, for past generations. And I, I sometimes wonder if people who have been through a lot and have a lot of trauma, you know, if they're if they are ready to talk about it. Um, and maybe it's, it might be better for them if they don't, you know, it's hard to say, like, I always think it's great to be able to process things, but maybe you unearth things and you don't have the readiness, the supports, the mental resources to kind of process things that that could be really tough, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think some people are on autopilot, maybe their whole life and that could be normal for them. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know what? I think I think COVID-19 has also highlighted that for a lot of people mm-hmm. of, you know, of talking about our mental health, because I feel like so much of us, it's it's just simmering right at the surface where it's like, yes. if something goes wrong, it's like, Ooh, okay, like it's, I, I need to deal with, with how I'm feeling, where am I at mentally right now? Yeah, I, th- I think the main part is, is that we are having such open conversations about mental health in our in our media right now. And so yes. hopefully that's making a difference in what's happening in our individual lives. If we're going to bring that back to the systemic and the individual, like how do we start realizing that we need mental health supports? Because that's a huge part that underlies how we traditionally define health. Yes, right? totally. I think, you know, the it is, it's been an interesting time, certainly in the field of mental health, because not only is people's mental health literacy increasing and going up, um, but we're starting to see some nuances of how people talk about anxiety, for example, or depression or suicide. We're hearing more stories about what it looks like in different people's lives. And it's both structural and interpersonal. Right. I think, you know, we're in in the in the midst of multiple pandemics and we're getting a diversity of ideas in popular media about what causes grief, trauma, anxiety, depression, suicidality, etc. And so it it is an interesting time to see how all of those things converge and and the language is increasing or expanding. um, I mean, the language is 
been there for a long time, but it's expanding in, in popular media, which is kind of nice to see. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We've covered a lot. So if we want, if, if we want to leave people with something feeling, feeling hopeful, what, what do you want to like leave them with? Like a bit of information. It doesn't have to be like an inspirational quote, but like from your experience, what's something that, that people can walk away with? Like a little nugget of, okay, I'm going to say wisdom. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it is to think about the time you're in and how this pandemic is in the forefront of your life or sitting in the backdrop. Like take a moment to think about where it is and how maybe it's both sometimes in the forefront and other times in the background. And what has it allowed you to do? What does it push you to do? And what are the conditions it's created that have been challenging for you? You know, uh, I think some people have felt a push to be more productive. And I think that hasn't been helpful. They need to know that, you know, now could be a time to get a lot done for some people. Mm-hmm. But if you're distressed, that's a legitimate thing to feel. Yeah. And there's a chance that our shame is getting activated when we feel like we're not performing our best, but we're trying to do a whole lot with very little. Um, And with an uncertain future, we don't have the conditions in our world that we used to have where you can plan, you can take breaks, you can look forward to something, you can meet people. Those were different conditions that allowed for more production. So for folks who are struggling, I would say be kind to yourself because the world is a particularly tough place right now. And for those of us who are grieving normalcy, we're grieving contact with people, we're grieving our own sexual identities. Uh, I just want to say, I see you. (laughs) Those are real things, you know? And uh, yeah, I look forward to thinking about how, thinking about and hearing about how couples and people have become innovative in their relationships and in their sexual lives as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. It's creativity abounds, you hope. Yes. You have to. Uh, Yeah, I... I, I really appreciate that in terms of I think there's such a um, monogamy like centric and the, anyway there's just I really appreciate your way of saying you know there's a lot in terms of our like our sexual identities that are you know being hampered right now under changing and yes. regardless of what your orientation is like it's it's definitely an interesting time or if you're spending far more time with like your partner or partners than you did before our relationships have all changed with ourselves and with the world. So yeah, it's totally, it's been a a strange time. It's been a time. (laughs) It's been a time. Oh, thank you so much. I I really, really appreciate your time. And I I appreciate you willing to, to share, to share like your wealth of knowledge uh, with, with my listeners. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on the love doctor podcast. On the next episode, I'm talking to intimacy coordinator and producer of XO Afterglow, Ali Oops. We talk all about ethical porn and why companies like XO Afterglow exist as a super hot alternative to traditional porn. As always, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to thelovedoctorpodcast at gmail.com or send me a voice message on Instagram at dr.leatidy. I want to hear your questions and I want to hear your voice on the podcast. So please don't hesitate to get in touch. 
And even if you don't have a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual.